At 9 a.m. on Thursday, April 9, 1942, General Edward King, a gentle, rotund, career army officer with a kind-looking face that boasted a walrus-like mustache, walked through his headquarters camp on Bataan Peninsula wearing his best uniform. Approaching one of the two waiting jeeps, the general said, There's nothing left to do but go and meet General Homa, and I would rather die a thousand deaths. He was paraphrasing Civil War General Lee's comment as he was going to surrender Confederate forces to the Union's General Grant. Hours earlier, General King had sent emissaries with white flags to the Japanese lines. As one of those colonels approached, Japanese sentries fired pistols at his feet, telling him to bring back your chief. So General King hoisted himself into a jeep alongside several aides. The other officers climbed into the second. The small convoy pulled onto the two-lane road toward the assigned meeting spot. Large white flags trailed behind the jeeps, flapping vigorously in the wind as officers waved them forcefully. They heard the approach of Japanese planes. They'll pass us by, boys. These flags are obvious even from their heights. They'll, they'll pass us by, King said, trying to reassure himself as much as anyone. The American officers warily watched the planes approach. Then something fell from beneath one. An officer exclaimed, It's a bomb! The bastards are bombing us! The jeeps increased their speed and turned a sharp corner in the narrow, winding road. The bomb exploded behind them. Just then, a smaller plane flew down, letting loose a torrent of machine gun bullets. Jump! The driver said, slamming his brakes and bringing the jeep to an abrupt stop. The officers jumped from the jeep into the roadside foliage as the Japanese planes finished their strafing run. Damn Japanese, we're flying a white flag, General King swore as he crouched in hiding. The American men returned to the jeeps and continued their trip. But the plane soon returned, circling back for another bombing run on the convoy. For an hour, the planes attacked, circled, attacked again. King and his men were forced several times to jump from their jeep for safety. Somehow, though, all the emissaries survived. They finally arrived at the destinated location, a small building in a Bataan village, only to await arrival of General Homa, commander over all Japanese forces in the Philippine Islands. Soon, a shiny Cadillac pulled up, the door opened, and a mere colonel emerged sent to represent General Homa in the negotiation. It was an insult. Over the past five days, Japanese attacks had disintegrated U.S. forces. And after three months of intense fighting, the worst was happening. Bataan was finally falling. This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by the Japanese forces in the Philippines. My great-grandfather, Alma Sam, was one of the POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell stories of his fellow captives. This episode is about the unthinkable decision of General Edward King to surrender all Filipino and American forces on Bataan to the Japanese. 
It was a controversial decision and one that would haunt King for the rest of his life. Now, I typically shy away from highlighting individuals who were high-ranking, so usually colonels and higher. I tend to look for stories of the everyday, in-the-trenches servicemen and women. In this case, though, I'm focusing on the general who was second in command in the Philippines in April 1942, because his personal story of surrendering Bataan really is the best way to tell the story of Bataan's ignoble fault. Also, I'm on vacation right now in Oregon, and I'm literally sitting in my car as I record this on a very nice portable microphone. That being said, the birds are chirping, a train goes by sometimes, and I can hear cars revving their engines. And I think the microphone is picking up a lot more background noise than usual. So if you do hear the odd bird chirp or train going by, just know I have edited out as much background noise as possible. And with that, let's jump in. Edward Postel King Jr. was born in Atlanta, Georgia on July 4, 1884. He and his two siblings grew up in Atlanta, where their father, Edward King Sr., worked for the Railroad Mail Service. The King family roots, however, run deep into South Carolina, where his fifth great-grandfather, Lieutenant Colonel James Postel, served in Marion's Brigade, which was part of the South Carolina militia during the American Revolution. So between that heritage and his Independence Day birthday, it seems that young Ned, as he was called, was destined to become an American hero himself. Ned studied law at the University of Georgia. After graduating college around 1905, he was a practicing lawyer while serving two years in the National Guard. Then, in 1908, he joined the U.S. Army as a second lieutenant in the 6th Field Artillery. In December 1912, Ned married Elizabeth McLaws, who seems to have been a friend of his sister. Betty hailed from Savannah, Georgia. The couple began their life together as Edward continued his military career, attaining the rank of captain in the field artillery by 1913. I know Ned served during World War I, but I'm not certain exactly how. Some sources suggest he never left the United States, others that he was in Europe, at least for a time. I have found a U.S. Army transport ship record showing that Ned returned from France in July 1919. That was a good eight months after the armistice that ended World War I. I'm not certain, though, what, if anything, that has to do with his World War I service. Directly after the war, he settled in Washington, D.C., where he and his wife would make their home for many years. Ned worked at the office of the Chief of Field Artillery. About 20 years after World War I, he was working in the Army War College in Washington, D.C., which was at the present location of Fort McNair. Established in 1901, just after the Spanish-American War, the Army War College offers postgraduate-level instruction to senior military officers and sometimes civilians to prepare them for senior leadership assignments. The main student body, as far as I'm understanding, is Colonel's. It exists today, but it's now located in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. By 1940, Ned had been promoted to Brigadier General, and he was assigned to the Philippines as General Douglas MacArthur's second-ranking ground officer. When Japan invaded the islands, General King played a crucial role on Bataan as MacArthur's artillery chief of staff. 
This role increased when MacArthur moved his headquarters to Corregidor Island and left General King in command of all U.S. forces on the Bataan Peninsula. By early March 1942, things were not going well for American and Filipino forces on Bataan, as it became increasingly obvious that the Philippines would fall to Japan. Thus, President Franklin D. Roosevelt ordered MacArthur to leave the Philippines. It was felt that MacArthur's talents would best serve the U.S. if the general were not captured or killed. By this point, the U.S. leaders had basically abandoned plans to reinforce the Philippines. Abandon is a strong word. It was a strategic decision based on resources. After Pearl Harbor, the U.S. just didn't have the naval strength to fight its way through the Japanese naval blockade surrounding the Philippines in order to bring reinforcement, equipment, and supplies to the struggling servicemen and women on Bataan. Plus, the U.S. had battles to wage in other parts of the Pacific, not to mention in Europe and North Africa. So, I understand the situation and the decisions not to reinforce the military. Still, when human lives are in the balance, Such decisions are hard pills to swallow. MacArthur himself didn't seem to have intended to leave the Philippines. In early February 1942, he had told officials in D.C. he and his family, which included his wife and barely four-year-old son, intended to share the fate of the garrison. When asked about his son's possible fate, MacArthur responded, He's a soldier's son. In late February 1942, MacArthur received a message from the Secretary of War. The President directs that you make arrangements to leave and proceed to Mindanao. You are directed to make this change as quickly as possible. From Mindanao, you will proceed to Australia, where you will assume command of all United States troops in the Pacific. So, on March 11, 1942, MacArthur, his family, and his staff members left on PT boats. Those are small, maneuverable gunboats that held 8 to 10 passengers. He told the senior officers remaining on Bataan and Corregidor, Keep the flag flying. I'm coming back. And he would, three years later. Well, the boats maneuvered through enemy-infested waters to the Philippine island of Mindanao, where the group boarded B-17 Flying Fortress bombers, which flew them to Australia. If you'd like to know more details about MacArthur's escape, I suggest looking up the Wikipedia page. I know, Wikipedia, right? But it's very robust and has a lot of sources. So, with MacArthur's departure, General Jonathan Wainwright took command. General King became Wainwright's second-in-command, having jurisdiction over all Allied forces on just Bataan. Leadership realized why he'd been ordered to leave, but many Filipino and American servicemen felt betrayed and bitter, calling themselves the battling bastards of Bataan, indicating that they were the forgotten, unwanted sons of the United States. A poem penned by a serviceman began circling on Bataan. We're the battling bastards of Bataan. No mama, no papa, no Uncle Sam. No aunts, no uncles, no cousins, no nieces. No pills, no planes no artillery pieces. Nobody gives a damn. Nobody gives a damn. It's a flippant six-line ditty with a heartbreaking undercurrent of the despair that would only grow stronger as the few torturous months on Bataan turned into more than three years of agony. They really were forgotten, and they're forgotten today 
because most people I've talked to don't know about the surrender in the Philippines, and many haven't even heard of the Bataan Death March. So yeah, the battling bastards of Bataan, the forgotten sons of the United States. During the three months on Bataan, conditions for U.S. forces grew steadily worse. There were, of course, the rigorous living conditions common on battlefield. Rough sleeping and eating accommodations, practically living in foxholes, the constant threat of death. But on top of that, food was running out. The quartermaster general on Bataan, that's the part of the army that manages food, shelter, clothing, and other such needs for soldiers, had food stores, albeit small, of canned meat, grain, and vegetables. But even at the beginning of the Bataan campaign, they estimated those stores would only last up to 50 days at half rations. The food supply slowly dwindled for the fighting soldiers. The quartermaster's units tried to supplement the meat with the native carabao water buffalo. But as a quartermaster colonel reported, it is impossible to slaughter sufficient carabao to make an issue to all units. And rations couldn't always be distributed evenly to all units especially those in areas that were remote and or particularly inaccessible. In the field, meals were sometimes supplemented by foraging for edible plants and meat from snakes, rodents, and other animals. But it was never enough, and the starving men lost significant amounts of weight. Historian Lewis Morton wrote, As the days went by, the ration was cut again and again. By the end of March, it had been so reduced and the fare offered had become so monotonous as to amount to little more than a token diet barely sufficient to sustain life. A private recalled, We had no food at all and were hungrier than ever. We were continuing to grow weaker. Some units hoarded their food supplies, much of which had been procured at military depots as the units were withdrawing from Manila. Other units would submit reports showing they had more troops than was actual. Thus, they'd get a larger portion of the rations. These units' ration stores would be hidden and guarded with barbed wire. There were even reports of rations being, quote, forcibly diverted from the units for which it was directed. An officer on Bataan later reflected, There is nothing quite so controversial as the Bataan ration. Some units got corned beef, others none. Some had corned beef hash in lieu of fish. Some got 8 ounces of rice, others 3.7. Some got flour in place of bread, some hardtack. But there is nothing controversial about the fact that the ration was grossly inadequate. On top of that, they were running low on ammunition, medicine, and other needed supplies. Uniforms became increasingly threadbare, and soldiers fought in shoes considered unfit for use. The lack of balanced, sustainable diets led to diseases associated with starvation. Units saw massive weight loss among their men because the caloric intake was well below the physical demand of battle. At perhaps the mildest end of the nutritional consequences, men struggled with apathy, depression, lack of aggressiveness, and irritability. On the other end of that spectrum, they contracted diseases like dysentery and beriberi for which they needed to be hospitalized. The numbers of men on this end of the spectrum increased exponentially as time on baton lengthened and the rations continued to be cut. As medicines ran low, units lost fighting men to these diseases 
and the weakened units couldn't hold lines as well as healthy men could. Needless to say, morale among the American and Filipino troops continued to suffer, and the Japanese had at least some knowledge of these conditions and exploited them. Japanese aircraft often dropped propaganda leaflets over the U.S.-held positions of Bataan. Some encouraged Filipino servicemen to desert or raised concerns about the U.S. actually paying the Filipinos. One leaflet stated, Take my word, you are exposing your life in danger without any remuneration. There is nothing so pointless. Another, trying to show the good life Filipinos would have under Japanese rule, stated, Throw away your arms and surrender yourself to the Japanese army in order to save your lives and enrich your beautiful future and the welfare of your children. The Japanese leaflets taunted Americans with images of food and the idea of their wives or girlfriends in the arms of other men. These tactics didn't work very well. American men started collecting and trading the leaflets to make complete sets. And can you imagine what a complete set would be worth today? I have a couple examples of those leaflets on the Facebook page. You can find the link in the show description. Japanese radio propaganda, however, was more successful. They controlled a radio station in Manila and broadcast a special radio program just for Americans. It included a theme song called Ships That Never Come In. That song title was a reference to the American fleet that U.S. leaders had been promising was on its way, but it would never arrive. So, ships that never come in. And these tactics did have some effect, especially as it became daily more obvious, even from speeches by the U.S. president himself, that help wasn't coming. On February 22, 1942, American servicemen and women on Bataan gathered around their radios to hear President Roosevelt's fireside chat. He discussed the global nature of the war, America's resources, and the tremendous task facing the American people. Immediately after this war started, Japanese forces moved down on either side of the Philippines to numerous points south of them thereby completely encircling the Philippines from north and south and east and west. It is that complete encirclement with control of the air by Japanese land-based aircraft which has prevented us from sending substantial reinforcements of men and material to the gallant defenders of the Philippines. For 40 years, it has always been our strategy, a strategy born of necessity, that in the event of a full-scale attack on the islands by Japan, we should fight a delaying action, attempting to retire slowly into Bataan Peninsula and Corregidor. We knew that the war as a whole would have to be fought and won by a process of attrition against Japan itself. We knew all along that with our greater resources, we could ultimately outbuild Japan and overwhelm her on sea and on land and in the air. We knew that to obtain our objective, many varieties of operations would be necessary in areas other than the Philippines. <coughs> now, nothing that has occurred in the past two months has caused us to revise this basic strategy of necessity, except that the defense put up by General MacArthur has magnificently exceeded the previous estimates of endurance, and he and his men are gaining eternal glory therefore. Carter's army of Filipinos and Americans, 
and the forces of the United Nations in China, in Burma, in the Netherlands, East Indies, are all together fulfilling the same essential task. They're making Japan pay an increasingly terrible price for her ambitious attempts to seize control of the whole Asiatic world. Every Japanese transport sunk off Java is one less transport that they can use to carry reinforcements to their army opposing General MacArthur in Luzon. And with that speech, the men on Bataan finally realized where they fit in this global plan. At the bottom, the president promised help, but it would probably take two to four years to get there. The Bataan forces, though, needed immediate help. One colonel wrote, Plain for all to see was the handwriting on the wall, at the end of which the president had placed a large and emphatic period. The president had, with regret, wiped us off the page and closed the book. And faced with all this, American and Filipino forces tried to hold out hope. But hope can only last so long. During this slow downfall for the U.S. forces, the Japanese were increasing their numbers. Now, the Japanese forces also struggled with some of the same issues as U.S. forces did. They had lower food rations and medical supplies and diseases and so forth. However, the Japanese resupply ships weren't faced with fighting through a naval blockade, as American suppliers were. From roughly mid-February through late March 1942, there was a lull in the baton fighting. Japan's General Homa used this time to rest and recuperate his forces, as well as to obtain reinforcements from Japan. These reinforcements included upwards of 8,000 men who strengthened and revitalized units some of which had been nearly decimated by the fighting in January. Japanese equipment, especially artillery pieces, were transferred to Bataan from other battlefronts throughout the Pacific to bolster Homa's fighting force. By April 2, 1942, the Japanese were prepared for an all-out offensive on Bataan. General Homa told his men, Artillery is plentiful. There are also enough special guns and supply arrangements have been completely prepared. There is no reason why this attack should not succeed. At 10 o'clock in the morning on April 3rd, 1942, Good Friday for the Christians on Bataan, 100 Japanese airplanes and 300 artillery pieces began bombing the Orion Baghdad line. This line ran east to west through the middle of Bataan like a belt. It was the second American line established on Bataan, of this line, General MacArthur had said, With the new line's occupation, all maneuvering possibilities will cease. I intend to fight out to complete destruction. I covered the retreat to and formation of this line in episode 20, if you'd like more details. Japanese planes and artillery bombed the American line for five hours, turning the jungle, especially the U.S. stronghold of Mount Samat, in the peninsula's middle into an inferno. American and Filipino defenders huddled in their foxholes, hiding from the dropping bombs and the smaller planes that swooped down, strafing any troops or vehicles they saw. The U.S. forces had little recourse. An American anti-aircraft battery commander wrote, It was agonizing to watch the heavy sail serenely over us, a thousand yards beyond our maximum range. U.S. artillery pieces were destroyed, 
Telephone lines became severed, destroying communication between the front line and commanders in the rear positions. Then the ground attack came, and for the next three days, so Good Friday through Easter Sunday, Japanese tanks and infantry pushed American Filipino forces back. U.S. commanders fought to reestablish lines. They mobilized reserve units to stop advances as the U.S. units formerly on the front lines staggered towards Southern Bataan. One captain in a reserve regiment remembered passing large numbers of stragglers headed for the rear. He wrote, Few had arms of any kind. Few even had packs. I asked several what unit they were from, but they just looked at me blankly and wandered on. And there are accounts of U.S. and Filipino servicemen disobeying direct orders to turn around and fight. These accounts say that the soldiers would look directly at their commanders and keep on retreating. By nightfall on Easter Sunday, the American line was broken. During this weekend attack, General Edward King, who you'll remember was over all the U.S. forces on Bataan, worked with his staff to move reserve units into positions and to plan a counterattack. But, as I'm sure you can guess, their resources, both human and equipment, were depleted. In the early morning hours of Monday, April 6th, several American units attempted counterattack movement against Japanese forces. Now, there are a lot of troop movements and details during the last few days on Bataan, but in the end, these countermeasures gained nothing. And if you're interested in the many, many details of this last week on Bataan, I suggest the book, The Fall of the Philippines, by historian Louis Morton. While the Americans and Filipinos attempted counterattacks on April 6th, the Japanese continued to push relentlessly into the peninsula's middle and eastern side. U.S. units crumbled and staggered to the rear. Communication between command and field units relied on runners. As the Allied defense disintegrated, southbound roads were jammed. Lewis Morton described, The story of the last two days of the defense of Bataan is one of progressive disintegration and final collapse. Lines were formed and abandoned before they could be fully occupied. Communications broke down, and higher headquarters often didn't know the situation on the front lines. Orders were issued and revoked because they were impossible of execution. Stragglers poured into the rear in increasingly large numbers until they clogged all roads and disrupted all movement forward. Units disappeared into the jungle, never to be heard from again. In two days, an army evaporated into thin air. Generals King and Wainwright, Wainwright, you'll remember, was over all U.S. forces in the Philippines by this point, continued to seek ways to halt the Japanese advance, which was now focusing on the western side of Bataan. The two Americans were working to put General MacArthur's orders into action. These orders basically told them to fight northward along the western Bataan coast to allow American and Filipino forces to escape into central Luzon. At that point, the U.S. soldiers could join guerrilla groups to continue fighting against the Japanese. Now, Wainwright and King knew these orders were impossible to achieve, but they attempted to follow them. But the countermeasures they did implement continued to be only marginally effective. The units that held American lines were decimated, suffering high casualties. An officer said, We were all so tired. The only way to stay awake was to remain standing. As soon as a man sat or laid down, he would go to sleep. 
The three-month deprivation of food meant that even the best regiments had no stamina to advance or hold off the enemy. Late on April 8th, Wainwright wrote to MacArthur, It is with deep regret that I am forced to report that the troops on Bataan are fast folding up. But he received no immediate response from MacArthur, so Wainwright and King continued attempting to implement MacArthur's standing orders. During the night of April 8th to 9th, 1942, messages bounced between Wainwright, MacArthur, and officials in Washington, D.C., including President Roosevelt himself. MacArthur warned the president that the situation on Bataan was desperate. In response, FDR maintained his policy of no surrender, which MacArthur passed to Wainwright, further emphasizing U.S. forces should attack the enemy and if Bataan fell, it should be done with soldiers fighting on the battlefield. Wainwright replied to FDR, promising that he would keep our flag flying in the Philippines as long as an American soldier of an ounce of food and a round of ammunition remains. For me, this order passing is very interesting. It seems to show that no matter what the generals in the Philippines were saying and seeing, the leaders far away in Australia and Washington, D.C., really couldn't grasp the situation on Bataan. And considering the state of the troops on Bataan, I don't know how U.S. leaders could expect these men, who called themselves the Bastards of Bataan, would keep fighting to the last man. So, while the generals passed these notes and orders across the oceans, General King was on the ground witnessing the chaotic reality of Bataan. And he felt deep responsibility toward the 78,000 men under his command. Lewis Morton wrote, The only alternative remaining to King if he followed Wainwright's orders was to accept the wholesale slaughter of his men without achieving any military advantage. And seeing no alternative way to spare the men under his command, King sent emissaries with a white flag toward Japanese lines in the early morning hours Thursday, April 9th. The United States was about to surrender. Later analysis would ask the question, did General King defy direct orders when he surrendered Bataan? And as these things often go, everyone had something to say and a finger to point. Wainwright wrote to MacArthur, I had no discussion with General King which might in any way have led him to believe either that capitulation was contemplated or that he had authority to send a flag of truce. On the contrary, I had expressly forbidden such action. General King did not personally broach the subject of capitulation to me. I don't know exactly when this letter was written, but less than a month after Bataan fell, Wainwright himself would surrender all of the Philippine Islands, against MacArthur's instructions. After being released as a POW, Wainwright said of General King, I have my orders from MacArthur not to surrender on Bataan, and therefore I could not authorize King to do it. But General King was on the ground and confronted by a situation in which he had either to surrender or have his people killed piecemeal. This would most certainly have happened to him within two or three days. Historian Lewis Morton, in his definitive work on the fall of the Philippines, wrote that King made his decision entirely on his own responsibility and with the full knowledge that he was acting contrary to orders. In 1948, after both Wainwright and King had retired from the U.S. Army, Wainwright defended King against Morton's stance, saying that, 
Early in the morning of April 9, 1942, Colonel Jesse Trawick was duty officer on the Rock of Corgador. He had been on duty all night. He came to me and said, General King is going to surrender Baton. I said, Trawick, you tell him that I prohibit it. Make this plain, I knew that King's position was hopeless, but I had positive orders from General MacArthur then in Australia, in which General MacArthur had radioed, and these were his exact words. There must be no thought of surrender, you will attack. I transmitted these orders to General King, well knowing he could not attack. But Colonel Trawick came back to me and said, it is too late, General King has already sent an officer forward with the white flag. General King had sent the officer with the white flag before he got direct orders for me to hold baton. He absolutely did not disobey me. I want to see no aspersion cast of General King. He is a gallant soldier and a brave and courageous man and a fine gentleman. It makes me very angry to hear any criticism of him. King himself denied defying orders. Of Morton's conclusions, King said, I know Dr. Morton personally. I have every confidence in and admiration for him as a historian. My suspicion is that any misunderstanding is due to a condensation of what Dr. Morton has said. I'm satisfied he never said anything to cast aspersion on me. I have a few thoughts on all of this. It seems to me that King was in an impossible situation. He couldn't carry out the orders he'd receive regarding mounting offensive attacks to move U.S. forces northward up the western coast of Bataan. That order was just impossible to achieve. Further, he was dealing with a fighting force that had, mentally and emotionally, already been beaten. By this point on Bataan, servicemen were ignoring orders that instructed them to return to the fighting lines. It's all well and good for leaders thousands of miles away from the battlefield to give no-surrender orders and insist that the only way Bataan will fall is with the last breath of the last man. That perhaps sounds noble and dutiful, but how could on-the-ground leaders organize, attack, and advance with a broken fighting force? A fighting force that considered themselves abandoned and forgotten by the United States. General King surrendered because he wanted to save his men. Unfortunately, he didn't know what he was condemning those very men to with the surrender. And it's my belief that he felt unbearable guilt for the decision for the rest of his life. More on that in a bit. Around 3 a.m. on April 9th, General King sent emissaries with white flags to the Japanese lines. As one of those emissaries approached the lines, Japanese sentries fired pistols at his feet and told him to bring his chief. Thus, at 9 a.m. on Thursday, April 9, 1942, General Edward King, wearing his best uniform and accompanied by several aides, left his command post in a convoy of two jeeps and went forward to meet General Homa, or so King thought. Despite the white flags being waved by men in the jeeps, Japanese aircraft strafed and bombed them for an hour. When they finally arrived at the designated surrender location, they were met by Colonel Nakayama and not General Hama. King later said, General Homa, to whom I was to offer a formal surrender, sent a staff officer to represent him. This was another humiliating and galling note. It was an awkward negotiation, with both sides misunderstanding each other due to language and probably culture. 
Colonel Nakayama initially thought King was Wainwright, and talks nearly stalled at that point when the colonel refused to speak with anyone except Wainwright about the surrender of the entire Philippine Islands, and not just Bataan as King was trying to do. Once that was sorted out, King asked for a ceasefire on Bataan, especially of the bombing and strafing runs. Nakayama flat out refused because, as Lewis Morton wrote, the Japanese rejected both the request for an immediate armistice and the cessation of air bombardment, explaining that the pilots had missions until noon and that the bombardment could not be halted until then. Eye roll. Surface-to-air communications were possible at that time. Nakayama further said the Japanese would not consider an end to hostilities on Bataan only. Japanese leaders would only order a ceasefire if the United States surrendered all of the Philippines. The Japanese would, however, consider unconditional surrender of individual people or units. Nakayama said, The surrender was accomplished by the voluntary and unconditional surrender of each individual or each unit. The negotiations for the cessation of hostilities failed. In other words, each soldier or unit on Bataan had to surrender individually, and the bombing and other attacks would continue as individuals surrendered themselves. Further, in Japanese eyes, King's surrender was just of himself, not the entire Bataan fighting force. King and two others were kept by Japanese forces as hostages to ensure other allied units would surrender themselves. The remainder of King's envoy returned to the Bataan command post to send word of the surrender to Wainwright and to pass along to each trooper and unit they passed that they had to surrender their arms. The battle for Bataan was ended, but I don't believe anyone had foreseen what the starving, sick, exhausted Bataan army would have to endure next. General King was not forced into the nearly 70-mile Bataan death march. He recalled, I don't know what my men thought when they began their march. They could not see me as I was held by the Japanese in a room with shutters pulled closed. But through the slats, I could see the remnants of a beaten, yet proud lot of men as they began their march of death. King was initially sent to Camp O'Donnell with all the other Bataan POWs. After about six weeks at O'Donnell, King was transferred to Tarlac. That was a POW camp that became a gathering place for the high-ranking American POWs. At Tarlac, he was reunited with General Wainwright, who had surrendered Corregidor and the entire Philippine Islands by this point. In August 1942, King, Wainwright, and the other American colonels and generals boarded a transport ship that took them to a POW camp in Karenko, Formosa. That's in modern-day Taiwan. King and Wainwright would spend the rest of the war together in these VIP camps, which didn't at all offer a VIP experience. At one point, King and Wainwright were transferred to another camp because Japanese needed to clean up the deplorable conditions at Karenko ahead of a Red Cross visit. Eventually, Wainwright and King were transferred to the Houghton POW camp, which was near Mukden, Manchuria, which is in present-day China. While in camp, General King sent a telegram to his wife. The wording and punctuation is awkward. It's read here as it was recorded. I've not heard from you since December and am more anxious about you than I can say. I hope my misfortune hasn't weighed heavily on your period. I'm good health 
and been so continuously. You've no reason to be anxious about me. I am in a very beautiful place with a delightful climate. I am well and very comfortably housed. Period. Love, Ed King Jr. How much of this letter is truth is hard to know. POW messages were highly censored. King would later write, The days dragged at Camp Houghton. We had no news of the world. Until we left our previous camp, we had news, courtesy of the Japanese. This news made our bitterness and hatred all the stronger. King spent 41 months as a POW. The Japanese considered him, quote, a gentle old man. King recalled seeing General Wainwright being beaten by guards. But as far as I can find, King himself never received such treatment. But that better treatment only intensified King's feelings of guilt and bitterness. He later told reporters, The entire time I was in the prison camps, I suffered, thinking I was a disgrace in the eyes of my men who had suffered so much. In August 1945, Russian forces liberated the Houghton POW camp, and King soon leapfrogged from China to Hawaii to California and finally to Atlanta, where he was received with a hero's welcome. I'm damned glad to be home. King said when he walked into his Atlanta home on September 8, 1945. Outside, a local high school ROTC group stood at attention. He wandered from room to room, weeping. Betty, the clock needs winding, he said to his wife. Then, with a wink to his family, he continued, I'll bet she was waiting for me to come back to regulate her again. And then he wound the antique clock that was once his grandfather's. I've put a picture of him winding that clock on the Left Behind Facebook page. When asked about things he intended to do, King responded, Well, for one thing, I promised myself when I was in prison that I would never pass a drugstore without getting an ice cream soda. He then, in a more serious tone, continued, To say I am happy today would be an understatement. The violent and sudden comparison of today with this time last month is unthinkable. There's such an elevation of spirit to be home that the day, the time, and everything assumes an air of perfectness. Truly, today is a day of thanksgiving. Every day from now on will be one of thanksgiving for me. I can hardly believe that I'm home at last. Home. With my loved ones. Sadly, though, the demons of war followed him home. Chief among them were a deep-seated hatred of the Japanese. Weeks after his return home, King wrote a series of articles. In these articles, he said, I feel bitter that my men suffered the tortures of these people while I seem to have been treated better. The bitterness and hatred has reached maximum proportions today. I'm back home safe, but how can I forget these people? How can I forget my men at Bataan? I think my personal surrender of the troops at Bataan was my punishment. I'm ashamed to say that I could not be with them on that humiliating journey from Bataan. I know that they went through a living hell. Don't ever forget that the Japs never shoot. They used the bayonet. Men were left helpless and dying on the road. The injured were buried alive. Think of that when a soft piece for the Japanese is considered. I hate them. They know only force. I've seen farmers in Formosa beaten almost to a pulp for
for some trivial thing such as not planting crops in the right way. These people will never be changed. I plead with the American people not to forget what some of our men suffered. Do not forget the humiliation and the torture heaped upon the men on the road to victory. We paid for this victory. We paid with blood, with lives, with heartbreak, and bitterness. The hatred and bitterness in these words are hard to hear. Now I'm not judging the general. I have no right. I did not suffer what he suffered. I did not see what he saw. I did not endure what he endured. But these and other of his comments make me believe that the humiliation and guilt he felt for surrendering Bataan and thus leading his men into the torture of Japanese captivity were at the root of his hatred. His comments paint a picture, at least to me, of a man who sat in POW camps for more than three years, trying to mentally handle the guilt. I think the massive number of deaths resulting from the surrender of Bataan weighed heavily on his heart and mind. To him, it seems, he was the one to blame. But I can't help but wonder what his feelings would have been if he'd fought to the last man. As has been said, there was little to no military advantage if the United States kept fighting to the last man. So in a lot of ways, his surrender was an impossible choice. But playing the what-if game really gets us nowhere. In 1946, General King attended several parades and other celebrations for Bataan veterans. He told a group in Helena, Montana, that upon his release from prison, I had a new language to learn. I couldn't even read my orders sending me home. When I went to jail, GI meant galvanized iron. And when I was rescued, it had become something entirely different. I've often wondered why U.S. soldiers in World War II were called GIs. And this quote of King's finally made me look it up. Turns out, those initials could refer to General Infantry, Government Issue, General Issue, or Ground Infantry. And, during the World War II years, it came to refer to soldiers in the U.S. Army or Air Corps. So, there's your random history fact for the day. In late 1946, King retired from the U.S. Army after 38 years of service. He'd achieved the rank of Major General. Ned and his wife retired to Sea Islands in Georgia and had a summer home in North Carolina. It was at this summer home where his wife Betty died in September 1954, nine years after Ned's return home. At some point, Ned remarried to a woman named Pauline. On August 31, 1958, 74-year-old Edward Pastel King Jr. died of a heart attack in Brunswick, Georgia. He is buried with his wife Betty near their summer home in North Carolina. Betty and Ned never had children. He was survived by his wife of just a few years, Pauline, and her son. He seems to have had a large and supportive extended family. One thing I wish I could have found was if General King's feelings toward the Japanese had changed in the last years of his life. I've run across accounts from several Japanese POW camp survivors who were young GIs when imprisoned and who, in their later years, were able to find some measure of forgiveness for their captors. I truly hope that General King was able to find some kind of peace. Now, back in 1942, as the U.S. forces on Bataan disintegrated in the last days before surrender, certain groups were ordered to leave the peninsula for the island fortress of Kurgador. 
Among those groups were the Battlefield Hospital nurses and the crew of the USS Canopus, including my great-grandfather Al-Masam. But the escapes were harrowing, and there was no assurance of survival. More on that next time. This is Left Behind. Thanks for taking time to listen. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about Edward King's story on my website. The link is in the show description. If you'd like to know more about the final offensive on Bataan, I suggest chapters 24 to 26 in the book The War in the Pacific, The Fall of the Philippines by Lewis Morton. I include a link to that book on my website. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Spreading the word about this podcast helps others find these amazing stories. Left Behind is research written and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Paul Sutherland, Mike Davis, Tyler Harmon, and Jake Harenberg. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken with dialogue. And I'll be back next time with a nurse's final hour's escape amid the chaos of war.